Well, good morning, Vista. It is great to see you today. Thank you for being here to worship with us. Um, one of the things that we are uh, highlighting this month each week is our discipleship pathway. Uh, we've been talking about that um, really through the month of July. Uh, our discipleship pathway are five things. Uh, worship, connect, give, serve, and go. Uh, and as we've said, we don't want these to simply be boxes that you check or some legalistic set of rules that you follow. Um, at the end of the day, we're here in church together week in and week out because ultimately we want to be good followers of Jesus. We want to be disciples. That's our call. Our call is to make disciples. And so this, uh, this kind of was our, our, our attempt, if you will, our goal. And, and how do we do that? How do we get people to be more fully devoted followers of Jesus? And so what we've said is these five things, if, if you will sort of submit to uh, or walk in these, these five things, we believe that you will be positioned well um, to grow in your faith and to become uh, more like Christ, okay? So we've highlighted uh, worship and connect. I want to just briefly, before we get into our text and sermon this morning, I want to mention give. Um, I'll be honest, give was something, giving, uh, tithing, offerings, those kinds of things, those were, uh, that was always a topic I never really wanted to ever touch on. So early, in the early days of our church, I'll be honest, I, I sort of swung really hard the, the opposite direction. I, I just never really talked about giving or tithing a whole lot, in large part because we had people coming to our church that had been at places where they said, that's, that's all the church talked about. They're, they're always in a capital campaign. They're always asking for more money. There's always a special offering being taken for something. And, and they were just kind of like, oh, I'm so tired of like, that's all they talk about. Um, and then I also grew up in an age where you had a lot of the, the tele-evangelists that would get on TV, right, with their really fancy clothes and all their bling, and their wives had like really big hair, and uh, they would say, if you will just sow a seed into our ministry, God will bless you, and all the health and wealth, prosperity, gospel stuff was kind of a big deal, and it always just kind of made me feel gross, and I thought, man, I do not want to ever be that guy. And so again, as a result, I sort of swung hard the other way, and never, I just never talked about it. And what happened is, over time, uh, we kind of got to a really unhealthy place as a church. Um, we had some consultants come in, and um, what we realized as we did some studies was that, like, less than 20% of our members, so not just attenders, members were giving anything to the church. And uh, our budget was at a place, we were like, man, why are we just not, for the size church we are, why is our budget so low? And one of the things the consultants said always, it kind of burned in my heart. He basically said, if you as a church have a giving problem, he said, or you think you have a giving problem, you don't really have a giving problem, you have a discipleship problem. And um, man, that really stuck with me because he was like, at the end of the day, Jesus talked about money, possessions, wealth, finances, like 40 to 50% of, of a lot of his teaching had to do with those things. And so I felt convicted. I was like, man, if I don't ever talk about this, I'm really not doing my job as a, as a pastor because at the end of the day, it is a discipleship issue. And so um, I just wanted to highlight this idea of giving because um, we've said this before, God doesn't need your money, right? God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not like going, man, if, if only Bill would just give more, I could really do some awesome stuff in temple. No, God's, God's got it all. Uh, God, is, God is good, <laughs> uh, but, but God chooses to use us and our resources to help make a difference and meet needs and have the gospel go forward. And so as a church, for us to be fully us, we need our, our people, our members, to be committed to generosity and to giving. And so the big principles that we always try to leave you with are, it's not what God wants from you, it's what God wants for you. 
Uh, Matthew, uh, Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So what that means is if we come in here and say, I love Jesus, my only question would be, does your budget match that? Does your budget back up the fact that you love Jesus and you love what Jesus loves? And then, uh, you know, the, the, the other kind of a, a big principle is that everything we believe about giving, it hinges on the fact that we see ourselves as stewards, not as owners, right? We said this in the last, some of the characters we've been looking at this summer. They were unbelievably generous. And we said, look, they, they saw themselves as stewards, that everything belongs to God, and we simply steward that. We're not owners of anything, okay? And so highlighting give this week, um, I never want to be that pastor that's like, we need your money and give us more money, because the truth is God doesn't need your money. And budget-wise, um, God's been very good and gracious to our church. Um, but just in the way of discipleship, I would just challenge you, um, if you, if you aren't giving, if you haven't given, if you don't consistently give anything, um, we're not caught up on like, oh, you got to give 10% and you got to, listen, start somewhere, be consistent, be faithful. New Testament says, be cheerful and be joyful in your giving, right? So if you have questions about giving, uh, you want to see a snapshot of the budget, like where's the money go? How's it being spent? How's it being used? Uh, how can I begin to give? Um, you can reach out this week. We've got a number of avenues. We try to make it as easy as possible. Lauren, our executive pastor, would love to kind of help talk with you, walk you through it. So um, highlighting give this week. Um, I just want to challenge you to, to be faithful in that, and let's continue to grow together. This summer, we're in the middle of a series called A Shared Gospel. Um, we are taking a look at some of the friends and associates and ministry partners of the Apostle Paul. Paul, uh, we are very familiar with, with a lot of what Paul did. Uh, he gets a lot of the limelight in the New Testament. But as we've said, Paul traveled with and did work with a lot of people. Paul surrounded himself with a lot of people that really helped him be the man and live out the calling that God placed on his life. And some of these other characters we sort of brush right over. And so this summer we're doing these character studies where we're just trying to see what we can learn from the lives of some of these other, these other people. Uh, along the way this summer, we're also trying to highlight the work of some servants in our own church because what we do is not an individual endeavor. It is a shared endeavor, and there are a lot of people that come together uh, regularly to help our church work, if you will. And so this week, I wanted to highlight our student leaders. These are uh, faithful people that serve and lead in our student ministry. They have been very, very busy this summer. For a lot of us, summer becomes the time we get to take a breath, right, and maybe relax for a minute and the hustle and bustle of the semester, you know, takes a bit of a pause. Not for these people, right? For student leaders, man, it picks up. They have been going to student camp. They've done high school mission trip, middle school mission trip. They have different activities planned up here in the evenings. Uh, many lead, uh, some of these adults lead small groups week in and week out in our student ministry, faithfully teaching the scriptures, building relationship with students. I have two of my three boys are in our student ministry, they love their small group leaders. Um, and so I, I personally, um, man, God began to change my heart when I was a student, when I was this age. And I know how vital and important student ministry can be. So can we give our student volunteers a hand this morning? They are awesome, awesome people. And uh, I'd encourage you to, to meet them and get to know them. Incidentally, this morning, we're looking at the life of a guy named Timothy and one of the big ideas I want to talk about with Timothy was that he was young. He was a youth. He was a student when he started following Paul. And so we'll, we'll get there after my rather long introduction here in just a minute, right? Um, Timothy is an interesting uh, character. I've always been fascinated by Timothy because Timothy 
Um, Of all of the friends and associates of Paul, Timothy was probably the closest to the Apostle Paul. There's nothing in the Bible or in church history that leads us to believe Paul ever married or had any children of his own. And yet, he thought of Timothy as his son in the faith. He refers to Timothy several times in his writings as my dear child or my son. Paul and Timothy had such a unique and a special relationship And it's always struck me, um, in a lot of ways, Timothy became Paul's right-hand man in his ministry to the churches. Um, Other other guys sort of were with Paul for a season and then left, and then, um, but Timothy just kind of stuck. And Paul saw Timothy as like his protege, and I mean, they they were working together right up until the end of Paul's life. And so one of the things that I thought about the sermon this week, and I thought about the life of Timothy, I wanted to kind of jump in by going, what was it in Timothy uh, that Paul saw that made him sort of, you know, take such a liking or, or, or find such a partner or a friend in, in him? What, what did Paul see in Timothy's life as a young man? So to do that, I want to start in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The letters of Timothy that Paul writes, um, in particular 2 Timothy, was most likely the very last letter Paul ever penned before his death. In 1 Timothy, what you see is Paul's concern for the church. Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus. There's a lot of leadership issues, some doctrinal stuff. There's some heretics trying to creep in. Paul's concern is for the church. And so he's writing to a young pastor, his friend Timothy, to help instruct him on the church. In 2 Timothy, what you see is the concern is more for Timothy himself as a person. Paul is at the end of his life. He's in a Roman prison, which if you read about Paul's life, seemed to be a habit for him. He was in a lot of jails. But this time's different. Every other time he was a Roman citizen, there was the likelihood that he would get out. He had some freedoms in prison. This time, the Roman emperor is a man named Nero. He was the most ruthless of the Roman emperors towards Christians. More Christians were murdered under the Roman emperor Nero than under any other Roman emperor. The stories you hear about, Christians being crucified, burned at the stake, beheaded, used for sport in the Colosseum, a lot of that happened under the Roman emperor Nero. Paul is now arrested and he is um, in, in prison, and he knows he's not getting out. And so he pens this very heartfelt, very sincere letter to, to Timothy to try to encourage Timothy. His concern is for Timothy. And in the opening, um, in the opening pages of, of, this, of this second letter, there's a verse that jumped out to me when I think about what Paul saw in Timothy. It's, uh, it's verse 5. Paul writes this, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. The first thing that I, I, I just kind of jotted down that I think stood out uh, to Paul was Timothy's sincere faith. Paul saw a sincere faith in Timothy that he may not have seen in a lot of other people. Timothy's faith was real. It was deep. It wasn't a shallow faith. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a convenient faith. You know people that have the convenient faith where it's like, when times are rough, man, my faith gets real, real, real quick. <laughs> and then there's, ah, when things are fine, it's like faith gets put on the back burner. No, Timothy's faith was, was real all the time. It was a sincere, these are Paul's words, a sincere faith. And then I started thinking like, where did he get the sincere faith from? And the text actually tells us It dwelt first in his grandmother, Lois, and then in his mother, Eunice. So there are some godly ladies in Timothy's life as a young man who were pouring into Timothy, who they were spiritually leading Timothy. 
Uh, They were teaching him the scriptures. They were providing discipline and correction and teaching him the faith and how to have a real and genuine faith. And and this is huge. We're going to look over in Acts 16 in a moment. What we're going to find is that Timothy's dad was not a believer. He may have been out of the picture. He may have been like a, a deadbeat father. I don't know. He may have been dead. Some scholars think he was probably may have been dead by the time Paul met him. We don't know for sure, but we do know that his dad was not a believer. We'll see that in a moment. So you had his mom and his grandmother that, that helped uh, teach Timothy and instruct Timothy at a very early age. And this is kind of a, a side note to the sermon, but I'll just say this. I know we have some single moms in our church that are doing the very best they can to faithfully teach, raise, lead their children, to teach them the faith, to teach them scripture, to teach them how to pray. We have some grandparents in our church that just because of circumstances, they find themselves in a place where they are raising their grandchildren. I've talked to several and it can be a struggle. And so I just want to say like your church, man, we are, we are fully supportive of you. And you have some really faithful examples in the Bible um, of, 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 you know, again, moms, grandparents that poured into, taught, instructed their children in the way of the faith. Timothy is a product of a faithful mom and a faithful grandmother that poured into his life when the dad was not any kind of spiritual leader. Paul saw a very sincere faith in Timothy. Over in Acts 16, in Acts 16 is where we are first introduced to Timothy. Paul comes to um, Derby and Lystra, these two towns, and Acts 16, beginning in verse 1, says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, a disciple, so already a follower of Jesus. A disciple was there named Timothy. And then it tells us about his mom. He was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And so the conjunction there, but, lets us know that his dad was not a believer. He doesn't say, and his dad was Greek. No, but. His mom was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Greeks were kind of known for their extravagant, wild lifestyles, partying, a lot of drinking. They, it kind of leads us to believe that his dad was uh, maybe um, as a Greek. That's kind of how, how they're refusing to, to, to know him. That his dad was, was not a believer. So he has a godly mom, not such a godly father. This is Timothy. Verse 2 says that he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And then it says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So he's about to go on this missionary journey He wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they knew that his father was Greek. They would not have even given him, they wouldn't have listened to him at all if they knew his father was Greek. He was an uncircumcised non-Jew. And then it says, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered uh, to them uh, for observance the decisions that had been reached by by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in number daily. Now, here's the thing. Timothy's not a baby, right? And I don't know how this conversation went. Like Timothy apparently was eager. He wanted to go with Paul. He's ready for the journey, ready for the mission. He's all in at this point. And Paul's like, there's just one more thing we need to take care of here, Tim, before we go on this journey, right? You cannot question whether Timothy was all in after that, right? You cannot question his resolve, You cannot question whether he was committed. Like, if you're willing, he's not, again, he's not a baby. He had to be willing. Paul's like, yeah, that whole circumcision thing, we got to take care of that because when we go to these towns, we're we're going to the Jews first and they won't even listen to you. It becomes kind of an important thing. Paul saw in Timothy a genuine commitment to the mission. 
He didn't say no. He could have backed out. He could have said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not, nope, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in for this. No, he was genuinely committed to the mission. And then really beyond this, what you see is that Paul developed a deep trust in Timothy. What we find throughout the letters to the New Testament churches is that often when the church was in disarray, there was a lot of problems in the early churches, we see that Paul trusted Timothy, even as a young man, so much that he sent Timothy to help deal with it. You don't just send someone if you don't fully trust them. We know that from Paul, learning about John Mark weeks ago. Paul deeply trusted Timothy. Timothy proved himself to Paul. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is one example of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 17. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Corinth was a jacked-up church, y'all. It had issues, problems. There was, I mean, there was some really awful sin stuff they were dealing with, church leadership problems, people misusing all their gifts. There was a lot of problems. It, it might have been the most kind of messed up church in all of the New Testament. And, and yet when Paul needs somebody to go to Corinth to help fix and set an example and make things straight, he chooses Timothy. He sends Timothy. When Paul writes his letters of First and Second Timothy, Timothy is the pastor at the church in Ephesus. Ephesus also had a lot of problems. Some leadership issues they were sorting through, some doctrinal stuff. There were some people coming in trying to teach a different gospel. Paul writes uh, to t- put Timothy in charge there in Ephesus, another pretty difficult, difficult church. And so what we learn is that Timothy, man, he was not afraid of hard tasks. He was not one to avoid the difficult. He, he was trusted by Paul and he went wherever Paul needed him to go, even as a really young man. Paul saw a sincere faith in Timothy. Paul saw a genuine commitment to the mission in Timothy. And then finally, uh, in 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16, here's what it says. Again, Paul writing to Timothy says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So from his mom, his grandmother, and then the apostle Paul, who's been teaching him and walking with him. And how from childhood, he says, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul saw in Timothy an eagerness to continue to learn and to grow as a young man. Paul saw in Timothy a young man who was eager to learn and to grow. Listen, Timothy, we already said his mom and his grandma taught him scripture. Timothy didn't reach a point as like a teenager where he was like, I know all this stuff, Paul. Like, I got this. Man, I went to Sunday school. I I learned all the verses when I was like six. I'm, I'm good. No, Paul identified in Timothy someone who, like a sponge, was willing to learn and absorb everything he could. And Paul noticed this. He found this in in Timothy. There was no arrogance in Timothy. There was a willingness to learn, a willingness to continue to grow. Paul noticed in Timothy sincere faith, a genuine commitment, and an eagerness to learn and to grow. Now, that's my introduction. I got to hurry. Here's what I wanted to kind of spend some time on um, before we go. All of these characteristics about Timothy are, are, I believe, indeed true. I think Paul noticed and recognized those things in him and thought, man, that's my guy. 
That's a guy I can pour into. That's a guy that will, that will follow. And uh, that's a guy that I can entrust the mission and the gospel to, even when I'm gone. What I notice about the Timothy that really jumps out, though, is, again, I mentioned this, the fact that he is really, really young. Timothy's really young. When he begins to follow Paul, he's most likely a young teenager. He's probably pastoring his first church where Paul sent him in his early 20s. He was a young man from a different generation than the Apostle Paul, okay? Now, youth, I've learned, can be uh, quite an asset or a liability in your life depending on how you use it and who it is that's doing the evaluating of you, right? Uh, I remember when we got started as a church, we were very, very young, very young. People would show up there like 30 years old and go, yeah, I'm old, right? That's the way our church in those early days, right? It was crazy young. And you know who loved the young church and the young leadership of the church? Young people. By and large, young people loved that, okay? They're like, oh, that, that pastor doesn't tuck his shirt in. Great. You know, like that, it was just the little things, right? It's like they loved the youthfulness of the church. But you know who wasn't always as fired up about the youthfulness of the church? Sometimes the older generations. And when I, I use the term older very, very loosely, because again, people would show up like 30 something and go, yeah, I'm, I'm really old here, right? That was the kind of the way that it worked. I, I remember distinctly a, when we first launched, um, there was a couple that came very faithfully for the first months of our church. They helped set up, they helped tear down, thought they were really bought in and invested. They were there for a while. And then after about, you know, seven, eight months, um, college started and we had a slew of UMHB students that all came to our church. We were meeting at Sparta Elementary School over close to the campus. And um, all of a sudden, I, I didn't see this couple anymore. I, I, you know, and back then when we we're like 120, 30 people, when a faithful couple stops coming, I noticed. <laughs> and so I call them. I'm like, hey, is, is everything all right? I hadn't seen you guys in like a month. And they just respectfully said, I'll be honest, we just, we just feel like the church is too young. We feel like the leadership is too young. Uh, we've been thinking, praying, and we just kind of feel like, man, spiritual leaders, our spiritual leaders just need to be older. We feel like our spiritual leaders need to be, you know, and they threw out, a na- they threw out an age. They were like, we feel like our spiritual leaders need to at least be like in their 40s or 50s. And I remember thinking, that's really old. <laughs> now that I'm there, I don't think that's old at all. But back then I was like, really? 40s and 50s? And I caught myself, I didn't say this, but I was thinking, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sin at age 33, meaning that by your criteria, you wouldn't allow Jesus himself to be your pastor. <laughs> but I didn't say that. I was just thinking it, right? <laughs> so anyways, they, they, they left. But the point being that like, some people thought the youthfulness of our church and the leadership was a really great thing. Others, not so much. Numerous studies have shown that different generations, as we get older, we tend to think of other generations in more um, cynical, negative, and critical ways. We tend to think of other generations in more cynical, negative, and critical ways. And this is true for both, for both groups, right? So for the younger, younger people often ignore, avoid, sort of blow off the older people. Oh, they're out of touch. They don't get it. They're not cool anymore. They don't know. That's the way they did it, but that is not the way we're, and there tends to be this attitude of they're just, you know, uh, they're just them. They're set in their ways. They're never going to change. And then the older people tend to look down sometimes on emerging and younger generations by saying, oh, you know, these, these 
you know, whatever generation you want to, you know, millennials or Gen Z, whatever, the, I can't even keep track of all the terminology these days, but they tend to look down and go, oh, they're just, they're lazy, they don't want to work hard, they're entitled, they're blah, and they have all these sort of stereotypes for younger generations, right? This is just what we do. When we're not, you know, our generation, we think we were great, everybody else's generation was messed up. That's kind of the way we often think, right? And so Paul, interestingly enough, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, so this is uh, in his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. This is one of the more popular verses in the letter that Paul writes. Some of you may recognize the verse. He says in verse 12 to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So you got Paul, an older pastor from an older generation, writing to a younger pastor from a much younger generation and he's telling them, don't let people just look down on you because you're young, which means in the church in Ephesus, there were probably a large segment of people that didn't want to listen to Timothy, that looked down on Timothy, that criticized Timothy because he was so young. And Paul says, hey, don't, don't like buy into that. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, ignore those old people. He doesn't say, pay no attention to them. They're past their prime. Pay no attention. When they tell you to turn the music down, you just ignore them. Don't listen to them, right? He, he doesn't just say, blow them off or ignore them. No, what he says is, instead, Timothy, you set an example for them. You set an example in your speech, the way you talk. You set an example in your conduct. Don't just talk it, but live it. You will change their minds by the way you live your life. You set an example in your love. You love God. You love people and let them see you. You set an example in your faith. You trust Jesus deeply. Don't let anyone tell you because you're too young and you don't have life experience, you can't have a deep, abiding, and sincere faith, Timothy. You set that example in faith. And then the last one he says is purity. And I'll just tell you, man, in, in our culture, in our world, it is really difficult for young people to walk in and set an example in purity because our culture does not value that. Our culture says, live it up, do what feels good, do whatever you want. But Paul says, no, no, no. You set an example even in your purity, Right? So Paul doesn't say, blow off this generation. No, we respond by setting an example. Timothy didn't use his youth as a license to sin. Man, some people just want to, I'm young. One day I'll get serious about Jesus. One day, I'm, right now I'm going to kind of live it up and live for myself. Timothy didn't do that. Timothy didn't use his youth as a license to sin. And he didn't use his youth as an obstacle to obedience. Sometimes we think, well, again, all the stuff Jesus asks me to do, man, that seems really hard. It's going to take a lot of discipline. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. And so we sort of live like one day I'll get serious about God, but right now I'm, I'm, I'm not, it's not that day. Timothy doesn't do that. From a young age, he had a sincere faith. He didn't use his youth as a license to sin. He didn't use his youth as an obstacle to obedience. And what I love about Paul and Timothy's relationship is I think they show us that age diversity in a church is a really good, healthy, and holy thing. Age diversity in a church is not something to sort of run from. It's something to actually pursue. And I love the fact that our church, as we've gotten older, we have more age diversity now than we probably ever have in our church history. And I see a lot of blessing and a lot of fruit from that. A lot of blessing and a lot of fruit from that. I could go on and, and talk, um, man, I got, I don't have a lot of time, but I could give a lot of examples, um, both in scripture of young people 
that God used in big, powerful ways, and a lot of older people, well past their prime, whatever that means, who God called and used in some really important, powerful ways. I'll give you just a few, like in the young. Paul says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. You know, throughout scripture and church history, it's full of God using really young people to do really important, really big things. We're all familiar with King David. David's probably the most popular character in all the Old Testament. He was a shepherd boy when he slayed the giant and then became king. You got a guy named Josiah in the Old Testament. He became king at age eight. And by his mid-20s, he led a large revival or spiritual awakening for the whole kingdom. You got a guy named Jeremiah, a prophet. He became a prophet when he was a kid. Isaiah, another popular prophet, became a prophet when he was a teenager, began to speak for God to the people. When God chose to enter human history, time to enter the world as the Messiah and the King, he chose an unwed teenage woman named Mary. Of Jesus' 12 disciples, he was particularly fond, probably closer to one, a guy named John. He's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. They had a special and close bond and connection. And John was, uh, by all accounts, the youngest of all of the disciples, probably also in his early 20s. As you get on into church history, you see countless people that we tend to think of as old men with beards, like writing important things or preaching sermons, but in reality, they started very young. John Calvin, he wrote his famous systematic theology, the Institutes, when he was in his early 20s still used today. The Puritans, we're all familiar with our own nation's history and the Puritans. Um, you know what the knock on the Puritans was? The knock on them was they're all a bunch of kids. They're all just a bunch of young kids. They don't get it. Literally changed the world. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, um, old famous preacher, started preaching at age 17 with no formal education. He was trained by a cook. And I could go on and on. I mean, throughout history, there's just been Countless people that God used. There were young people that, that had a sincere faith that God used in a powerful way. So yeah, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth, is what Paul says. At the same time, I could go through the same list of older people, well past their prime, that, that we would tend to think, oh, they're kind of in their twilight years, they're beyond, and then God calls them and uses them in some new, amazing, and fresh way. Like, God's not, if you're older, listen, God's not done with you yet. God still has work for you to do as well. The big idea is that age diversity in a church is a really good thing. In, in particular, one of the ways I, I've often um, thought about this and the importance of age diversity is in regard to uh, the idea of vision. Um, vision is one of those words, those kind of buzzwords in, in church work and ministry. You've all heard verses like, without vision, the people perish. And so um, years ago, we actually had a pretty good little debate in our own um, leadership about what is vision? What does it mean to have vision as a church? And what I found is vision means different things to different groups, often different generations. Like for, for younger generations, vision is where are we going? Looking ahead. Where does God have, ha what does God have for us in the future? We need to have clear vision for where we're going as a church and where God wants us to be. But often for older generations, vision was something that we stay tethered to back here. Vision was this thing like God called us to be this. We have a vision statement that is to love God and love people by living and sharing the gospel. And we don't want to kind of get away from that. We want to be faithful to, to what God has called us to do here. So vision became this thing we're tethered to that doesn't let us, you know, chase rabbits and become some other entity we never intended to be. But vision also became, well, where are we going? What's God have for us in the future? And what I realized is both are really important, right? 
We need to be tethered to some stuff. We need to, listen, we've said it before, we don't get to make this up. We don't get to make up the faith. Like others have gone before, paved the way, been really faithful. So we are tethered to this thing over here while at the same time, we need to be going somewhere. Like, what does God want for us 5, 10, 15 years down the road? And so do you see how having different generations in the church can actually be really healthy and really holy for the church? Because both are really important. Both are really important. I'll wrap up by just saying this. The challenge for older generations, the challenge for older generations is to have the mentality of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not scared of younger emerging generations, younger emerging leaders. Instead, he prayed for them, he encouraged them, he equipped them, he invested in them for the sake of the gospel. Because Paul understood that if the gospel was going to move forward, if the mission and the work of Jesus was going to move forward, he needed to have some younger emerging leaders that were going to take the gospel forward. And the challenge for the younger generations is to have the mentality of Timothy. Timothy didn't blow Paul off and say, forget you, you're older, you're out of touch, you don't get it. He listened, he honored, he respected, and then he set an example for older generations. We can all kind of get locked into our way. We can all get real prideful and think that my way is right and everybody else is wrong. My generation was right, everybody else was wrong. To be clear, there's good things about every generation and there's probably some negative and bad things about every generation, right? And the key in the church, if we're going to have unity in Christ, is to learn from one another, to appreciate one another, and to collectively together move the kingdom, build the kingdom together so that the gospel moves forward. This is the heart. This is when, I, when I read about Paul and Timothy, man, it just kind of warms my heart because I see, I see these guys from different generations working together for the sake of the gospel. And that's what I want for our church as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you, for, thank you for the diversity of your church. And God, I know diversity can mean a lot of different things. There's a lot of different, really important kinds of diversity. We often think of racial diversity, which is really important. We think of um, socioeconomic diversity. We think of denominational diversity. A lot of us come from different sort of faith backgrounds and what we were brought up in. And God, those are all really, really good things. God, today I'm, I'm particularly grateful for the diversity of, of age here. I'm grateful, Father, that there are some faithful older generations who have paved the way, who invest in, pray for, and support younger generations for the sake of the gospel. And God, I'm thankful for some younger people with a lot of vitality and energy. And, and God, the fact that, that they're here and they're willing to listen and absorb and learn, and they're willing to help us take the gospel forward in our community. So God, teach us to be more like Paul. Teach us to be more like Timothy and have that mentality where we work together for the sake of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.